Fanboys and fangirls, it's your host, Aaron Broverman. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. In the house today, we have Hope Nicholson. She's a small press publisher for Bedside Press. You might know her for uh, recent publications like Nelvana and the Northern Lights. She also did Brock Windsor. And right now, she's working on another project that's an anthology series called The Secret Loves of Geek Girls. Welcome, Hope. Hi. You are a very unique guest for us because you sort of have your hand in a lot of different uh, different areas. What people know you from mostly is the Canadian whites and how you managed to get those republished after years. For those who don't know, those are comics from the 40s and sort of the golden age of Canadian comics. But before we get into all that stuff that you're doing, I just want to start at the beginning as to what got you into comics. I don't know. I always find that a hard question because it, it seems to me it's often like asking people what gets them into TV or movies or books. Like to me, it's just another medium and it's something that I always grew up reading. I mean, my parents had comic books around the house, my grandparents did, and so it never really struck me as unusual until I hit some time in elementary school when I realized that not everybody read them. But by then, I had been so comfortable reading them that I just kept on doing it. Were they like a natural part of your house because of what your family did? Um, I don't know, just people liked comics. Uh, Donald Duck or Disney comics were often found in my grandparents' house, like for the kids when they come over. My dad had a lot of old westerns and things like that. Nothing they read regularly, but when I was looking for stuff to read, I would always come across some old stashes of comics. And Sweet. Where did you grow up? Winnipeg. Nice. My father's from Winnipeg, so he grew up in the North End. Yeah, I'm from uh, the North End as well. Awesome. That's cool. So... What brought you to Toronto? Uh, Well, I came here for my bachelor degree back in 2004, then moved back to Winnipeg to do some work in film production, and uh, came back here for my master's degree a few years ago and just uh, stayed ever since. Okay, cool. So the whole time you were growing up, you were reading comics. What were the first sort of things that you really that you really got into? I guess the first things I read were mostly Disney comic books and things like Archie. But then the first ones I read of my own were really ElfQuest, uh, which uh, my parents had found at Walmart or something and brought them to read. And then I kind of got obsessed with them and read them. Uh, I, I would read whatever my brother brought home to. So he had the whole like... Death of Superman saga and the clone saga from Spider-Man and Spawn. From that, I kind of read a bit of my own stuff, a bit of his stuff, and yeah, just kept on going through that. I would often pick up comics at the flea market and things like that, just when I needed something quick to read as well. What appealed to you about comics? Like, were you into superheroes and that sort of thing? Or what What was it about the medium that appealed to you? I, I, I don't know. It's 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 hard to say what's going on in like a, a four year old's head, but I mean I just I just really liked reading them and I just kept on reading them throughout time. I, I stopped a bit in junior high or at least I slowed down a bit, but I would still uh, often, every so often, go to the flea market and still pick up a few issues here and there because it was really hard to stop entirely. Even though I realized at that point that was something that maybe other people weren't reading and maybe I should should stop doing that. 
You mentioned earlier that in high school, you sort of realized it was a little bit weird for you to be reading comics or people thought that it was weird for you to be reading comics. Yeah, like no one was reading comics that I knew. Uh, I mean, no one was reading books that I knew. It's not like anyone in my school was very, you know, literary oriented. Uh, but definitely no one was reading comics. And so I kind of realized that that wasn't a thing that people did kind of seemed like a really nerdy thing, even though I was, you know, going to the comic book shop and not having anyone to talk about it really made me feel, I guess, isolated and weird. And when you're the only one into something, uh, I think it's it becomes a strong pull to kind of stop doing it yourself. So that was sort of the conflict that made you sort of want to stop in, in high school. Yeah, pretty much. Like, you just try to do whatever you can to fit in high school and just get through the years. That's about it. Okay. So then then you got interested in film, right? You You went in for film production and that sort of thing. But were comics sort of an all, always a part of your life, like in the in the back of your head? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I never did give up uh, comics entirely. I would still keep reading them, just a bit less so in junior high. And then I discovered digital comics and web comics, which really got me into into that a lot more. Because they were a lot more easily accessible. I could just read them on my computer. It didn't feel like the whole collecting thing that I had always associated with comics. So yeah, and so then in, in university too, I managed to find a few more people who actually read comics. And that's when I started to realize there's people I could talk to about these things. And that was uh, that was just revolutionary to me. It was, it was very exciting. Yeah, a lot of my projects in university centered around comics analysis, uh, as well as they did for film analysis. So, uh, did you ever take any classes that uh, looked at comics academically? I remember that I read Mouse and other graphic novels like Watchmen in university, sort of academically for the first time. I read those for fun, but my first academic course was in third year university uh, with Jonathan Warren at York University. Yeah. The, you sort of got involved in sort of the history of comics and you're sort of an advocate for the scene and and women in the scene as well. What got you to go from film to like actively publishing and, and editing comics? Well, they were all kind of related, actually. I remember I was doing an internship at uh, Book Television and I met a producer at Space Television. So this was back in about 2007, 2007, 2008, uh, named Mark Asquith. And I was telling him about my the history of uh, 1940s Canadian comic books. And he was the first person who was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I know all about those already. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said he actually had some. And that, uh, I guess, just a few pieces fell into place like that. And I decided I want to do a film about the 1940s Canadian comic book history. And so when I was working for a documentary company, when I moved back to Winnipeg later that year, we started to pitch around a concept. And unfortunately, it didn't get off the ground. But at that time, I'd started doing a lot of research into the rights behind the comic books, uh, getting scans of the comic books from collectors that I could use for the film and finding people who might want to participate in a documentary. Even though that project didn't get picked up off the ground, another documentary did with a very similar theme called Lost Heroes. And so I showed them that I had a lot of information on the subject. I had all these people lined up for the project I'd been working on. And if they want to have me, I'd be happy to join in as a producer. And so that's what happened there. That's awesome. Yes, Lost Heroes... Uh, I highly recommend it to our listeners. It's basically comics, but the Canadian history. Uh, it's the first documentary that I know of that is totally centered on Canada's place in, in comicdom. The The project I had been developing was on the general history of Canadian comic books, but Lost Tears actually is only focused on the superhero genre that is true. of comic books. Yeah. So I think it's important to make that distinction because Canada really isn't known for their superhero genre, like most, so a lot of our... 
history of our comic books is still left unexplored. For people who don't know, tell me a little bit about uh, the Canadian whites and that history and, and why it sort of got lost until you managed to bring it back. Yeah, well, in uh, the 1940s, Canada executed a ban on any imports from the States that were considered non-essential or luxury goods. So along with comic books and pulp novels, that also included things like champagne, chocolate, sports cards, anything that really wasn't essential for war efforts. And uh, so then we had to create our own industry because kids really wanted these comic books. They had had a few years of Superman and Detective Comics and all these things. And it just really created an urge, a need for more. And so a bunch of Canadian publishers from Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto stepped in to create their own comics. Historians many decades later called them the Canadian Whites because the interiors of most of these comic books were black and white with color covers. Not all of them. The, the vast majority of them were. And yeah, when the war ended and the, the act was repealed, uh, American comic books fled back in the country and Canada no longer had a monopoly on, on kids' imaginations. And so unfortunately, they couldn't survive and it just faded. Wow, it's sort of like our own sort of version of a Canadian prohibition of of something. But in this case, it was like non-essential goods and that sort of thing. The whites of the printing, the fact that they were black and white, was that due to saving printing costs during the war effort? Or? Pretty much. I mean, with Canada, everything is going to be a lot more expensive to produce because we have uh, we don't have as dense of a population base as the States does. Um, since we're, it takes a lot more money to ship books across the country, takes a lot more money to print things when it's going to be at a lot of smaller units. So because of that, the only way they could have a cost that was at least somewhat comparable to the U.S. would be to print them in black and white. Plus, there wasn't really that many uh, color registers that would have experience in printing in color that these um, small press publishers could access. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the heroes and who your favorite hero is out of the Canadian whites? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of heroes. There was also a lot of um, funny and gag cartoons. There was a lot of westerns and a lot of nonfiction comics, too. That was a really big thing that was coming out of Canada at the time. I guess my favorite right now is probably Brock Windsor because it's the last character I, I published. But also the artwork is really, really strong in Brock Windsor. The panel layouts are really distinctive and unusual. And the character itself is is a really interesting one. And unlike other comic books from that time period, which would go in short kind of serial bursts. It really was one overarching story over the few years that it ran. And so Brock Windsor, what's sort of the the snapshot of, of who Brock Windsor is? Uh, so Brock Windsor focuses on the adventures of a Winnipeg doctor who discovers a magical land in the middle of Lake of the Woods. And this land is full of giants and monsters. And when he uh, gets stranded on the island, he discovers he's been infected by the island's mists and is becoming a giant himself. And so he has to set on a voyage uh, across the island in order to find a cure before his giantness will actually kill him. So he joins up with some people on the island, the son of a deposed tribe leader who's trying to regain his kingdom and the granddaughter of an ancient ghost. And together they try to find a cure together. Wow. Okay, so after you wanted to put together this documentary, it kind of fell through. Then you got involved in another documentary. How did you get all the resources that were necessary to try to republish the Can the Canadian Whites? I know you started with Nelvan of the Northern Lights, right? Well, it was really important in the documentaries in order to uh, show the documentary properly. First of all, all the rights would need to be licensed. And so that was something that I, I got clear off from the start, which is something that a lot of people, actually, I'd say most people were not aware of that these comic books are not public domain for the most part. 
Um, so when I found the rights licensors, I contact them. We went back and forth about using the images in the documentary. And then I need to find the images themselves. And so I had to go find collectors who had the original comic books and ask for scans and ask for high resolution scans. So by the time the uh, documentary came out, I already had pages and pages of these comic books, I already had the rights licensed, I already had all this information, and that's when I realized, at that moment, that was also when Kickstarter came to Canada, and I'd had a few friends who'd done successful projects through that, and I thought, well, I I know who the rights are, I have a bunch of these scans, and I definitely know where to get the rest of them if I need them, and now there's this avenue for actually getting people's help to print the book. So I asked a friend of mine, uh, Rachel Ritchie, if she wanted to join with me, because I wasn't sure if I could... I've never done publishing before, so I wasn't sure if I could handle everything on my own. And then, yeah, together we did Nelvana and the Northern Lights, and it was a nice little Kickstarter success, and it showed that, uh, yeah, I could publish books. I, I remember uh, the Kickstarter. Well, that wasn't too long ago, right? That was... Well, that was a few years ago now, yeah. Yeah, just, just a few years ago. And yeah, it was it was a big it was a big firestorm. What do you think people responded to in terms of supporting it so so hugely? I think really the concept of Nelvan and the Northern Lights uh, that she was a female superhero that went undiscovered that she was this Canadian character that was undiscovered, and all of this history that people didn't know about. That's really what they respond to the most. I think uh, I always make the joke whenever someone says that they read Nelvana, I'm like, well, you're probably only one of ten. Because uh, most people were just buying it in order to help make sure that it was always accessible for researchers, for historians, for things like that. But very few people are actually reading it for pleasure. Yeah, it was just to keep the history alive. Yeah. Did you have to contact the estates of the creators or like their family members and like let them know that you that you were doing this? I didn't have to, but I did it anyways. <laughs> That's um, good. That's ethical. The first thing I did with both Nelvana and Northern Lights and Brock Windsor was to contact the estates and ask them if they would be okay to showcase uh, the characters in a publishing project. If for any reason they were uncomfortable with that, as was a possibility, I would have decided to do a different project. So were they supportive? What what yeah. was the response? What did they what did they tell you? They were very supportive. Yeah. Um the state I'd been in contact with a few years before I did the reprint project uh because I wanted to interview them for the documentary, uh which actually never ended up happening unfortunately, just due oh, to timing and schedule. Bad. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, of course. There's a lot of people unfortunately that we couldn't get just because of schedules and timing mm-hmm. and unfortunately. Yeah, I I'm a journalist so I I definitely know where you're coming from with that for yeah. sure. But but it's good that they were supportive. What did they say? Like, were they were they excited about it, or was it like finally somebody's bringing this back, or were they more like you can just do it and that? They were pretty excited, but I mean, like it had been a long time since they'd really thought about these comic books, so they were a bit surprised. Uh, I'd say the Brock Windsor estate was was incredibly excited. The Adrian Dingle estate was a bit more cautious. I think they've had a lot of contact with people that have wanted to do new works and they were a bit hesitant thinking that this might lead into that but that's never something I asked so once they were confident that I just want to reprint the original works I was able to go to the estate's house and look through all of his material and yeah it was it was a great experience nice they gave you access to everything and yeah the Dingle State was super super supportive that's awesome and Novana was People might remember this, but in 1995, there was like a stamp collection mm-hmm. of Canadian heroes. And I think Nelvana was featured on, on, one, on one of the stamps. Yeah, she was. Actually, one of uh, the Secret Loves a Geek Girls contributors, Janet Hetherington, helped to organize that back in the 1990s. Wow, cool. I, I, I still have that, that series, so 
that's that's really fascinating for me particularly. So once the Canadian Whites was published, first Nelvana and the Northern Lights, and then you you did it again with with Brock Windsor. Was the plan to just keep publishing the Canadian Whites until they were all done, or what did you want to move on to once you had a once you had a sort of hit a little bit on your hands? Well, that's something that I really had to decide because uh, as as much fun as restoration is, the fact is with Brock Windsor, Nelvana, and the Northern Lights, to my mind, uh, with all the research I'd done to date, now I had not read every single Canadian White. That's for sure. They were the best ones, and then there's the question of. Well, it'd be nice to have everything reprinted, but there's, you know, hundreds of comic books. How do you choose what to do next? And I was thinking, and I'm like, you know what? I I would like to take a break from this for a bit, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> so you still have, yeah. like, Johnny Canuck and those sorts of ones that people remember as well, right? Yeah, I think uh, uh, Rachel, who I worked with on the Nelvana project, actually did Johnny Canuck reprint as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. So it's good that you guys are sort of doing your own thing. You're slowly getting this stuff out. Are you are you still working together? Are you working separately or We only work together on the Nelvana project. Oh, okay. Yeah. I understand. Okay, so what what was your next move after the uh Canadian Whites? Like what position did you find yourself in? I'm sure restoration is a is a tough thing because you sort of have to be meticulous about it. So where did you want to go from there? Uh, well, I contacted a few collectors about working on the next restoration project. Um, so the next one I will be doing, which I haven't done yet, is Wing, Nitro, and Polka Dot Pirate, which are really nice, fun characters, not having any hugely substantial place in the Canadian industry, but good characters nonetheless. But I wanted to make that less of a priority than uh, branching off into new content. And so that's when I was actually asked by AH Comics if I want to be an editor for a new anthology they were doing on native comic books. And uh, growing up in Winnipeg and having, you know, um, a lot of friends in the Aboriginal community, that was something that was really intriguing to me and really interesting. And so I thought that'd be a really good way to test uh, my ability to do new comics. And yeah, it went very successfully, I think. Did you find before you went into new content, how do you feel about your position as a sort of comic historian? Do people ever sort of typecast you in that role? Or are you proud or, or conflicted about about your place as sort of the person who, who brought back the Canadian whites? I'm very proud of it. It's uh, It was work that I think was absolutely necessary to do, and it was very exciting to do. It's just not all of what I want to do, but it's also not something I want to stop doing either. It's just there's a lot of hidden stories, some from the past and some that haven't been told yet that I think are really important to get out there. Yeah, and, and of course, one of those hidden stories is, you know, representing minorities in comics that don't normally get a voice. And yeah, First Nations is definitely one of those groups. What was your experience publishing that anthology? That's definitely a voice that gets largely ignored. And, and usually when they're in comics, it's it's usually a stereotype of, of, some, of some kind. Well, I wasn't actually the publisher for that project, so it was kind of a, a nice break of a pace that I didn't have to deal with the printing and all that, but I was the editor. Um, so I, I hunted out the writers and artists. The thing that was most important to me at that time is that I wanted people to be telling their own story. I didn't want to have a bunch of writers who were not in the any kind of Aboriginal communities to be telling stories of groups that weren't their own. So it was essential to me that all the writers were Native. 
and uh, or Inuit or Métis. And I was luckily able to find a great deal that were, and a lot of the artists too, in addition in Moonshot are, although not all of them are, put them together to work on these stories. And these stories were mostly based on traditional stories. And going through that process, I was able to learn a lot of things that I wasn't aware of. And I always think that I'm pretty good at Aboriginal issues and, and pretty sense of these things. And there's always things, though, that you don't know because you're not part of the communities. What did you What did you learn? What did you uncover? I'm fascinated to know. Uh, one of the things that was really important that I learned early on in the process is um, by one of our contributors, Elizabeth Lepense, who also helped a lot with going over the comics and looking at them to make sure that they were sensitive and appropriate. She told me that a lot of stories are not meant to leave outside the community. There's very kind of a Anglo notion in our history where we think all stories should be told and uncovered. And that's not necessarily the truth. And even I, as a historian, I have to balance that between wanting to uncover all these stories and also be sensitive to that some don't want to be told and some shouldn't be told. For that reason, that's why I went to the States before I did the publishing uh, reprinting of the 1940s Canadian comic books. So I, I understood that when she told me, but it wasn't something I'd before been aware of. Other things, too, like we were told by one of our contributors, Michael Shiache, which I probably pronounced wrong. Oh, no, sorry. It was Richard Van Camp in Winnipeg who told us that it was uh, inappropriate to refer to them as myths or legends, which I understood because these are people's stories. These are, you know, religious stories in many ways, uh, stories that are very integral to their community. And they're not something that should be dismissed as fake because they're not. Yeah, or some sort of mysticism. That's sort of a dismissive yeah. way to look to look at, you know, history. And for that reason, a lot of our stories, while based in traditional stories, or they are traditional stories, are set in uh, locales that are a bit unusual. They're set in the far future. They're set in d- distant planets because it's a way of kind of forcing people to step away from the mysticism that a lot of these stories are seeped in uh, to our eye. You mentioned the idea of some stories like they don't want to be told or some people don't want to tell them. What were the concerns that, that people had? It's just not a story that's meant to be told to outsiders. It's, uh, that's all. Like, they just want to keep yeah. it within within the community. Yeah. And, and that's, that's totally understandable because we've seen so many times when things exit communities, they become bastardized, become other things. Like we look at tales of the Bigfoot and and things like that. It's become such a joke in popular culture. So maybe they have good reason for not wanting stories to be told outside the communities. And I can fully respect that. Yeah, absolutely. Like these are, these are cherished uh, histories and, and, you know, there's, there's definitely validity in in saying that like only our people are going to know really how to tell these stories properly and take them seriously and use them with respect. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the stories that are in the anthology and like what readers can expect if they if they were to pick it up? Yeah, sure. So some of the the stories really range from communities from across North America. There's Swampy Creek, there's Inuit stories, there's stories from the South and from the West and from the East all across. And I think it's really important to understand there's great diversity within First Nations and Inuit communities that a lot of people, you know, I even catch myself sometimes saying, you know, Aboriginal First Nations as one solid unit. And that's not true. Like it's many, many different communities that are very different from each other in a way that you wouldn't confuse, you know, Spanish from Vikings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So yeah, so some of the stories are very small stories. There's stories of uh, traditional ceremonies. There's stories of monsters. Uh, there's a lot of monster stories actually in this. And there's some stories of, of hunts and importance of that as well. So some of the stories are about extraterrestrial contact, uh, which are concepts that a lot of people weren't aware of, were familiar to some First Nations communities before there was ever white contact and things like that. So yeah, so that's some of the stories, I guess. It's a very general, uh, I guess, overview, but I think it's really important for people to pick up the book and kind of go over themselves to see the individual plot lines. And it's also really hard to tell what the plots are because it's really how it's interpreted that's really important. And I can't really tell someone what the story or what the moral might be and they might get something completely different out of it because they're kind of like fables right like you Mm. you get different you get a different thing out of depending on how you read it or not really i mean that's something that i tried to make clear in my introduction is that these stories might not have a point they're not meant to have a point they're not meant to teach you you know like it's not like aesop's fable where it's like don't let jealousy ruin your life these are just stories that make up people's lives and everyone's gonna take something way different from it and you might not take anything away from it other than it was a really nice story and some of them i know people will get to the end of a story and be like but what was the point for that then that was just a story but there was no beginning middle and end it was just a story and like yeah well that's what our lives are yeah but (laughs) art takes many forms and there are abstract things and there's more linear things i think people just need to get out of the box of what they expect stories to be particularly in comics where you know superheroes have been drummed in our heads yeah and there's a lot of forms of storytelling that i think are you know very anglicized uh very anglo in many forms very white Um, that aren't really the way that other cultures are telling stories. So I think it's important to know that sometimes, you know, when you think of the monomyth cycle, the hero's journey, things like that, that's not the way storytelling exists in all cultures. You talked about how most of the stories in this anthology are, uh, they went in a more traditional direction. Was that on purpose or is that just what happened? Like most of the artists and writers picked traditional uh, tales to tell uh no that was actually a purposeful decision um that was the the main goal of the anthology was to tell traditional stories in different ways uh, to show you know the different ways that they could be told and that they're all equally valid the publisher had previously done a collection of jewish stories in the same way from uh jewish traditional storytelling so he kind of wanted to keep that on board as a theme with the next project ah i yeah. see i see I kind of want to get to the present and sort of what you're working on now. You know, a, lo- a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about has to do with like history and that. But now you're sort of taking on uh, another group of people that doesn't often get heard. And, and that's the that's the group that you're a part of, you know, particularly in comics. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, the secret loves of, of Geek Girls? Yeah, sure. It's a nonfiction anthology of comic and prose stories told by women in the fandom industry. Uh, so that's comic writers, video game developers, fangirls, cosplayers, journalists, all sorts of things. I guess in comics now, we're, we're seeing a lot of attention being paid to, you know, there are more women reading comics and... Oh, we have to, companies have to, like, you know, tell stories that they weren't previously telling to sort of cater to this new audience. I sort of think that they always existed. I don't necessarily think it's such a new thing. What What is your take on this sort of new push to, and it's kind, it's kind of a little bit of a bastardization, to try and get 
women into comics. I mean, as you said, women have always been in comics. Uh, when you look at the Golden Age, which is an area that I've studied a lot, and uh, that one of my, well, I guess, I, I won't say friends, I guess so, and one of my contributors, Trina Robbins, has been studying a lot, uh, has shown that back when comics were in the Golden Age, it was pretty much even between women and men. I mean, even Margaret Atwood, uh, who's one of the contributors for the project as well, she said when someone asked her, oh, you you like comics? She's like, I grew up in the 1940s. Of course I like comics. Like, we all read them. Like, that's just what happened. So that's the thing. And it's only when comic books went into the specialty stores, when they left the newsstands, when that, when, you know, there's one person being the gatekeeper, kind of, that it kind of faded away. And women stopped reading comics and was uncomfortable. I mean, even when I was in Winnipeg, I would go into the local comic book store across the street from my, from my junior high and high school. It felt weird. It felt uncomfortable. And even though no one was purposefully saying anything, even though nothing happened, like no one, you know, tried to geek cred me or anything, it was very clear that this was a place that was not meant for me. Try to describe the experience a little more. Did people ignore you or did they pay special attention to you because you were a woman in a comic book store? Well, I was or... definitely not a woman at that point. I was definitely a child. Okay. Um, but the feeling was more, I think that they were generally called to everyone and people just kind of went in very isolated got their comic books and left or whatever it's not like there was a male community either it's just that seemed like the default when i walked in there uh, you go to comic book stores sometimes now comic book stores like the sidekick run the the east end of toronto or to the page and panel shop at bloor and young and you see that they're well organized that there's a lot of lights there's a lot of space to move around they're set up nice and I'm not saying that that's a female-oriented thing, but I feel going into that shop, it's the same as any other shop. It's just one that happens to sell comics. It's a little bit more like like a Chapters or an Indigo sort of setup, like a regular bookstore type of type of thing. I don't know. Um, I just feel like they're friendlier, more welcoming, easier to access. There's more of a a, a feeling that when I walk in there... It doesn't feel like I'm going into a gloomy dungeon. And I'm not saying that the looks of these comic book shops are what pushed women away, but it's definitely not something uh, that would make us comfortable either. Not, not, in, not in situations where, you know, we're uncomfortable walking down the street in dark alleys, things like that. Walking into a store that's the same kind of, like, brooding presence is not going to make us want to linger long. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that for sure. So for this anthology... Was th was that kind of thing on your mind? What, what were the goals for this anthology? What what did you want to say that that needed to be said? Uh, mostly, I just wanted to give an avenue for my friends to tell our stories. So this the things that when we get together, because we have built these communities now. So when we get together um, at our friends' places or at comic book shops or you know for coffee and things like that, these stories that we tell. And usually uh, the reason I picked sex, love, and romance is that that's one of the big things that often is on our minds. Other things too, like, I mean, I could do one on, you know, business relationships and I could do one on friendships. There's a lot of different things that we've talked about over these meetings, but definitely sex, love, and romance was something that was always very interesting to me in particular. And so I want to give us an avenue to tell these stories, especially because I, I noticed that they weren't being told. Like, people would, still on TV shows, you don't really see many female geeks and you don't see them talking about their lives or the, the nuances of being a fangirl or anything like that, so... Romance and, and love comics and those sorts of stories have always sort of been distilled and stereotyped. Like, there's no nuance in a lot of those sorts of stories. 
Well, I mean, romance comics as a genre are very different from nonfiction stories. Yeah, about for romance. sure. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, but like, in terms of what you see, you know, you don't really see nonfiction stories that focus on, you know, sex and romance and those sorts of things told by uh, women who are currently in the fandom and are currently like living it, basically. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I guess some of the inspiration for the book uh, was kind of the letters columns in the backs of, of comic books where people kind of would go into a bit of their personal lives, tell little stories, a little bit of the stories that we tell ourselves when we meet up in person, and a little bit of, uh, you know, the confessional stories you see in Seventeen YM magazine and like. Who are the contributors? Can you tell me a little bit about them and how you how you got uh, this group together? They're all your friends. Some of them. Some of them are strangers, but they all seem to like me okay, which is important. There's uh, about 50, a bit more than 50 contributors, all told. They really range from across industries, across professions, across ages. Our youngest contributor is 16 years old. Our oldest contributor is 76 years old. Yeah, it's it's something really important to me because I want to, especially because I study history so much. And so I know that really not much has changed over the years, even though we think it has. So I want to show that, especially in dating and things like that, the, the relationships haven't changed. Was there anything about these stories that, that surprised you or you think will be unexpected or unique for, for people reading them? Definitely a lot of the stories surprised me. There's um, one story by Laura Newbert about... Her fear of weddings, and this this stems from popular culture when you have these stories of these amazing women, say Disney movies, and then as soon as they get married, the story ends. There's that feeling of once you get married, the story ends. Your your story ends. All your fun adventures end. And that created a fear in her. And I think telling these confessional stories is mostly important because other people will read it and understand, oh, I have that too. And the more stories we tell, the more likely it is to get that reaction to get that sense of I'm not alone out there when they're reading it. That's that's really good. Like I, as a member of a minority myself, I kind understand sort of what it is to want to have like your own voices told and you know reach out to other people and that sort of thing. So yeah, that that's awesome, and I'll I'll definitely pick that up. You're also an advocate for women in fandom in general, right? And the issues. In, in fandom for, for women. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do and what what those issues are? I complain a lot on the internet. That's what I do. Um, what do you uh, complain about? Uh, just everything. But no, there's, there's, uh, there's representational issues, but there's a lot of issues that happen with a lot of industries. But because I work in comics and I see things and I, and I talk to all these women involved, I'm very aware of the particular issues that feature people uh, women working in comics. And that starts off very early from when you're going to conventions before you've done anything and when people dismiss you or when they make fun of you and even when you're rising the ranks until you get to a certain level, in which case you don't hear them as much, except you might hear a whisper here and there about, oh, do you know how they got to the top? And things that uh, are told in such a way that you're not sure what is true, what is not true. And sometimes men and women forget that it doesn't matter what it is. So I, I hear all these gossip about women and men in the industry, and a lot of it has nothing to do with their work whatsoever. It has nothing to do with who they are as people, unless they're actively harming other people in the industry. So so that's something that I, I try to talk about uh, on social media a bit to, to remind people that that you have to treat women like, like we're human beings, because we are. And, you know, we're hopefully treat you like you're human beings too, and we'll treat each other as well. 
um, to be aware of internal misogyny that women might hold against other women as well. You know, that's when people get accused of cattiness and things like that. And yeah, it's something that's it's really important to me. And it's mostly important for me to create spaces and to encourage the creation of spaces where women can get together and have communities and to promote that as a good thing, that coming together is a good thing, that we work together, that we help each other out, and that we have spaces where we can talk about our issues. Um, so I encourage uh I've not developed any, but I do encourage and support female spaces like the Comic Book Embassy in Toronto, which is a female comic book studio. Things like High Tea at the Embassy, which is their event that's that's women exclusive. That happens once a month. Things like Comic Book Shop Ladies Night, where again, it's female exclusive. And yeah, and collections like this anthology, which I mean, I, I did develop, I guess, um, where it is female exclusive and where it's a safe space. You helped develop the female community in terms of Ladies' Night with uh, Deborah Jane Shelley and Alice Quinn and those people, right? I mean, I, I was active in them from the early days, and I reached out and promoted the event as much as I could to all the women I knew in my community. Is there a difference? Because I'm seeing Ladies' Nights happen more and more. And is there a difference between, like, genuine Ladies' Nights, de- genuine safe spaces where, you know, you can talk about the issues, the things that you're saying, and Ladies' Nights that are done just for marketing purposes and to get more people uh, buying comics? I think we definitely want people, to, more women to get be buying comics. Every time there's a Ladies' Night that I've attended in Toronto... I see people come who've never read a comic before and uh, people telling them, oh, well, what kind of genres do you like? You like Westerns? Maybe you're going to like Pretty Deadly or things like that. So it's a great space if you've never been into comics before to kind of become accustomed to it and get used to it and get recommendations. Um, So in terms of marketing, I mean, they all play together. It's really great to go there and to encourage buying of new comics, supporting of, of really great talent. And it's really good for it to be a social exercise as well. I guess I wonder if like some places use it more as a gimmick, like that they're actually really invested in in trying to do what some of the others do. I don't know how much it might matter as long as the effect in the end is the same where it's a safe space for women and a place that they can socialize and get together. I, it's just something that I wondered being on the outside and, you know, seeing more comics doing it, which I think is a very positive thing in general. If you're not, you know, just doing what you always did, you know, you're just call, you're just putting the label Ladies' Night. Like, there should be something special about about Ladies' Night, and it should... Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard of any occasions where one has been advertised that is not actually a safe space. Um, That would definitely be a problem if it was. Uh, So far, I haven't heard of anything. What about conventions and like the is are there issues with like cosplay and yeah absolutely um conventions i mean as a as a tabler i I, i've gotten harassed pretty much every single time i've had a convention in some form and i try to keep in mind which ones are the worst for it so that you know or ones that don't deal with it in in case you are being harassed and it, it ranges from you know guys threatening you to guys making lewd comments and that goes from both other retailers and tablers and from the public. Uh, not much you can do about the public, unfortunately. But from other others, hopefully there would be. And I've seen cosplayers get harassed. I've seen guys, as soon as a woman turns around, try to sneak a picture of their butt. And I've, I've gone and yelled at them because they've said, oh, no, she gave me permission. I'm like, no, she gave you permission for the photo you took of her where she was posing nicely, where she was showing off her costume to best effect, where she was smiling. 
not for you to get like her panty lines. That's crazy. Is this special to comics? Like, do comics have their own issues around misogyny and sexism? Like, is it is it worse in comics? I mean, because I know that misogyny and sexism exists everywhere, but do comics have their own issues? Because we're talking about. I think because I've worked in the media industry and because I've worked in the comic book industry and, you know, I've worked in other industries as well, I can say that misogyny and harassment exists in every industry that I've seen to date. And something that's really great about the comic industry uh, is that we actually are discussing it. So it might seem like more sometimes than other industries, but I think it's almost a positive thing because it's showing that we're not afraid to talk about it now. I see in so many other industries, like you've even seen things in the restaurant industry where, you know, cooks are harassing dishwashers and things like that, where it's just swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. And people don't talk about it. It's just like, no, no, don't cause a fuss. And in comics, I think there's a lot of us, a lot of women, a lot of fangirls, a lot of cosplayers, a lot of creators who are saying, no, no, we're, we're going to cause a big fuss because this shouldn't be happening. This is our space. This is our industry. This is what we're creating. And you don't get to harass people. Wow. Um, so it's hard to say. I think it seems worse sometimes than other industries because there's more talk about it. But I think that actually might be a positive thing. It's good that you guys feel that you can stand up and say something, I guess, more than other industries. But I don't know what contributes to to other industries sweeping it under the rug. But is there something about the way comic fans are socialized that that allows them to stand up and say something more readily than than other industries? Well, I think the nice thing that's happening now is that we're seeing a lot more and more that small press publishers and things like Kickstarters and things like that can give you a voice. So there's less fear of, oh, no, if I don't get in at this publisher, I'm never going to work in the industry again. You're like, no, I could actually probably do quite well. Um, and web comics and things like that, that when the more that we can control our own distribution, our own access, our own income, the more power we have to say no to situations that are exploitative. And more widely, it seems like creator-owned is becoming more of a thing for everyone and that it's not just about my big dream is to draw, you know, Spider-Man and Batman for Marvel and Marvel and DC. Now it seems like more people are recognizing that the power in comics is to have your own creation and your own your own voice yeah i mean that's definitely an important thing but i mean we still see spider-man x-men everything are very powerful in of themselves for sure but if for any reason you don't you're not drawn to the superhero genre then there's a lot of different avenues in comics to explore and i think most of the women in my anthology uh the ones that are comic creators are not based in the superhero genre aside from maybe one or two girls yeah I, I've noticed I've noticed that too in a lot of in a, in a lot of other anthologies so that's good and you know I'm certainly a person who knows that you know you can you can tell any story in a in a comic book form because it's a medium it's not necessarily a genre um, you mentioned it as a comics as a vehicle for nonfiction and nonfiction stories can you talk a little bit about sort of the, I don't know, there's there's a little bit of a journalistic aspect when you're telling stories that are true and stories that are your own? Yeah, there isn't, there isn't. Uh, kind of similar to the way that Moonshot was done, these stories not necessarily will be 
100%, you know, uh, verifiable in their accuracy. These are people's life stories. These yeah, are the, the stories, and they might remember things slightly different. Things might have changed. They might want to couch it in a bit of a fable uh, telling instead of just a strict journalistic. Some people are doing lists of things they like. Some people are doing memoirs. Some people are doing comics. Um, so it's really important that in some ways it can be journalistic, but for a lot of these, it's it's really hard to say that any memoir is a journalist, no matter how meticulously, because it's all about your own interpretation of your own history. Of course. And, you know, journalism has a long history, particularly feature journalism, of telling the reporter's own stories and putting the reporter in the story. Gonzo journalism, you know, not all uh, journalism belongs in a newspaper. You know, you have your Hunter S. Thompsons and your Tom Wolfs and that sort of thing. So it definitely mixes in, like just because you are telling a memoir, it's not necessarily not journalism, but then it's also it's also not necessarily journalism either. It's sort of a hybrid. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same way in that the moonshot stories are true stories. Even people say, well, no, because there's no spaceships yet. There's no giant snakes. It's like, no, but they are true. Like the stories are true, even if the facts aren't, if that makes sense. It's, it's hard to explain, but... Yeah, memoirs Memoirs are very interesting things because it's all about our own interpretation. It's all about what we've taken away from it. Uh, there might be a million facts that we've forgotten that are unessential. Just like in documentaries, too, there's things that we chose to tell, stories that we chose to tell in ways in that we're telling them. When you introduce anyone into a story and they're telling their own story, you're introducing a point of view. So they get to decide you know, what to omit and what to include and what to exaggerate and what to not. And that's true if you're introducing a reporter into the story or if it's just a you know regular person telling their telling their own story. Yeah, I mean there's some journalists involved in the book, but from what I've seen their style of writing isn't any different from the creatives that are involved in the book. So, it's hard to say. I think uh, especially for women, they really have a good handle on the memoir genre uh, more so than almost any other genre. Is there any like fan fiction or those sorts of things that you are maybe getting into or are you going to stick with women's true stories? Are you going to represent uh, you guys any more, any differently in other in other uh, things? Um, I mean, female stories that are not just nonfiction, like not just our stories. Yeah, there are some genre stories that I guess are more associated with with female content that I do want to go into. I've been very interested in fashion comics for a bit, for example. And I've seen romance comics take off very well on Kickstarter, erotica comics, uh, and things like that as well. Not that any genre really should ever be purely associated with one gender, but I do notice that some genres are less respected because they're associated with women, which which is a shame. And hopefully uh, the more we can get out of there, the more that that can kind of ease off as well. I mean, I'd love to do an anthology of men telling romance stories because at least then people would stop thinking of it as a women's only genre. Yeah, and and it would it would show that like men have something to say and it's not just women and yeah, but I mean, women have been dealing with that sort of thing since, you know, like at least like the 19th century when it was, you know, reading was a was a women only pursuit according to some people. Anyway, I just want to ask you the last uh, question. What what are your what are your plans for the future? Where do you want to go 
now after after all the things that you've done you you've done really well tackling minority issues in anthologies are you going to keep going with that or or what are you planning to do there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of different content i want to do it's just a matter of taking uh one at a time and deciding kind of which threads i want to build my career out of so to speak um I can't talk about a lot of the projects I have in development right now. I've been developing a documentary for some time and have produced some content that is focused on a history of uh, gay and lesbian and trans characters in comic books. So that's something that hopefully I would love to get off the ground. But with documentaries, it's so much more difficult than publishing, unfortunately. So that'll remain to be seen if that ever uh, develops into a final project. But there's other collections, more reprints, more histories more new anthologies that I'd love to work on in the future. And I'm just going to keep on pushing them out there. Where can people find you if they want to uh, follow your career and follow what you're doing? Yeah, well, they can uh, feel free to check out my website at hopenicholson.com or they can check out my Facebook page at Bedside Press. Um, Facebook is usually where I update the most. So it's a good way to keep informed there on new projects that are up and coming. Awesome. Well, thanks, Hope, for coming in. It, it was a really informative conversation. I, I learned uh, a great deal talking to you. And uh, I hope our listeners really appreciate uh, having you in as well. So uh, see you next time uh, on our next episode of Speech Bubble. Thanks, Hope. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Never Sleeps Network.